Well, good morning, South Valley Community Church. Hope you're doing well. We are in sort of this weird stage still, and I wanted to start a new sermon series this week, but I thought long and hard about what I should talk about, and I decided to talk about the Lord's Prayer. The previous two weeks of this corona lockdown, I've talked about the goodness of God, and let's just pretend that this was intended to be a series, and this is part three on the goodness of God, but from a different angle, specifically trying to ground this in the good character of our good Father found in the Lord's Prayer. And so we're just going to walk through this uh, verse by verse, sort of small piece by small piece piece and break it down. Um, But then like any good puzzle, you're not supposed to just look at the individual puzzle pieces forever. You're supposed to put it together and zoom out. And so what we'll do is take a look at the pieces individually and then bring them all together and zoom out. So before we enter into the Lord's prayer though, keep in mind, the Lord's prayer is found in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon given by Jesus. So the words we are about to look at are a part of the greatest prayer in the greatest sermon by the greatest teacher preacher to ever live. So we are going to be walking on holy, sacred ground. This is profound. These words are meant to encourage, inspire, and convict. And so we walk into this holy, these holy words with, with fear, trembling, and with hope. Jesus begins the Lord's prayer with this introduction. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Okay, so it's the introduction to the Lord's prayer. A couple thoughts before we dive in though. First, Jesus says, don't pray as the Gentiles do. Now, Gentiles is a term that refers to ethnicities. It's talking about anyone who is not ethnically Jewish, but it can also have another meaning, and that's how it's being used here. Uh, it's, it's Jesus' way of saying, the rest of the world, they're Gentiles. They're not Israel. They are not God's people in this moment. And so they pray differently. Therefore, God's people, when you approach him in prayer, you do it differently than the rest of the nations do. The rest of all the other groups who worship all the other different gods were different. We don't pray like them. One of the things that he highlights is the fact that when the Gentiles would pray to their gods and goddesses, they would give these long drawn out prayers. And the idea behind it was this, that if you can give a long prayer, a long and powerful prayer, something that you muster up, then you can somehow trigger the gods into giving you what you request. Or sometimes you would have syllables that you would rush together that weren't necessarily real words. It was almost like magic and incantation, syllables mushed together, and you'd go on and on like this to try to invoke, trigger, or manipulate a response from the gods. And what Jesus is saying from the very beginning is this, you do not go to this God in an attempt to manipulate or trigger a response. You don't go to try and manipulate God, you go to commune with him. Christians go to a good heavenly father who we don't try to manipulate or trigger into getting something that we want. We go to commune with him. Why? Because Jesus says, 
He already knows what we need before we ask. I mean, how powerful is that for these moments? Your good heavenly father already knows what you need. So when you go to him, you don't go to manipulate or to trigger or to go on and on till he finally gives in. He already knows. So go to commune with your good heavenly father who knows your needs, who knows your wants, who knows your desires. Additionally, Jesus says, and when you pray. And Luke's account of this, the Greek's a little different. And it talks about like whenever you go to pray. And there's a reason that modern people miss something that Jesus intended here. Jews in Jesus' day prayed at minimum three times a day, morning, lunchtime, noon, and evening. And during these three prayers, morning, lunch, and evening, they had memorized prayers that they would recite. Now, memorized prayers can obviously turn into kind of just a ritual, ritual that you go through without any meaning, but a memorized prayer can still be very powerful. And so Jews at the time of Jesus, when they awoke middle of the day and before they went to bed would have prayers that they would recite. And they knew that they would do these three with habit. So when Jesus says to first century Jews, whenever you go to pray at minimum, they would have been thinking of these three sets of prayers. And we know that the first Christians took this this way because there's an early Christian document from the late first century called the Didache. And in chapter eight, verse three, it talks about how Christians are to recite the Lord's prayer and they recite the Lord's prayer when they do their prayers three times a day. And so the first Christians already at the end of the first century were participating in reciting the Lord's prayer three times a day. Now, a good sermon is supposed to save like the application to the end, but how about that? Let's just put all the application up front. If we could do one thing in this moment, in our circumstance that we find ourselves in, wouldn't it be awesome, incredible to memorize the Lord's prayer and say it three times a day. When you wake up, our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And at lunch, maybe before you eat, our father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And as you go to bed, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So right there, already something powerful that we could be doing. And so Jesus tells us, we don't pray like the Gentiles. We don't pray to manipulate or trigger God into action. We go to him to commune with him and to give him our needs and our desires and our anxious fears and thoughts because he already knows them. The first line of the Lord's prayer, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's focus in on just these first two lines. First off, our father, when we go to God, we need to see him as father. Now this is incredibly difficult for some people, especially if you had bad earthly fathers, if you have a bad earthly representation of what a father ought to be, then going and seeing God as father is difficult. But if you're going to mature in your relationship with this God, you need to see him as he has revealed himself. And he reveals himself as a father, a good heavenly father who knows your needs, 
who knows your anxious thoughts, who knows your fears. And he says, come to me and bring them before me. When you have an understanding of God as father, it changes the way you live. It changes the way you act, changes the way you interact with people. You approach the world differently. God is not an abstract deity. He is not your heavenly mother. He's not an aunt. He's not your, you know, cool uncle that comes along every now and then. God is your father. And again, that is difficult if you had bad earthly representations, but you have to figure out how to adjust your understanding. And you have to understand God is the good father who loves you, who cares for you. Uh, you see this best with uh, young kids when they have good fathers who they can trust. And so for instance, uh, my, my son, when he, he's, when he was about a year ago, so when he was like early three-year-old, um, he'd, he'd climb up on something and he'd want to jump off. And it was one of those things where I could see he's afraid, um, but he knows I'm near and that I'm going to catch him. And so he'd get up and you could kind of see his legs shaking, but he wanted to, he wanted to jump. He wanted the excitement of jumping and then having me catch him. And, and I could still vividly remember him and the, the, the intonation in his voice, the texture of his voice, dad, dad, dada. Dada, you'll catch me. Dada, catch me. Are you going to catch me, dad? And I tell him, yes, of course. And he jumps and I catch him and he squeezes me. And then he wants to do it again. And many of you know that experience. When a child hasn't been harmed by their father and they still have that trust and love, they say, I'll jump, but just catch me. And they trust and they jump and they'll say, let me do it again. And so you have to have the image of your father be one of the good heavenly father. And that's how we pray. We pray to our good heavenly father. Secondly, it says, hallowed be your name. This word hallowed is the Greek word agiadzo, and it means to make holy or to sanctify. It's this idea that God's name should be set apart. And one of the things you need to understand is that in the ancient Near Eastern world, the world the Old Testament was written in, someone's name was part and parcel with who they were, their essence or their character. So to insult the name of someone was to insult that person's character, to insult that person's being. And so when we are saying, you know, make your name holy, we are saying, God, your name is set apart. May it always be set apart. Make it holy. If you've been a Christian a long time and you've read through the Old Testament, you know that when people pray to God for God to act, they will often pray like this, God, for your name's sake, act. God, for your name's sake, deliver me. This is interesting. They don't pray, um, Lord, I know you love me so much and I know I'm so special and unique. So for your love for me, deliver me from my enemies. It's Lord, for your namesake, that the world may know that you are a good, gracious, loving God, deliver me from my enemies. You see this in the book of Ezekiel, prayer reflects this. <clears throat> it says, Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, 
It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now, you can look at this in one sense and go, well, that's kind of selfish. God is just doing stuff for his namesake, not out of his love for, for, for me. And you, you have to understand that doing something for his own namesake is not contrary to his love for you, but his love for you is tied up in doing something for his namesake. Let me explain what I mean. You want God to act for his namesake because you don't want God to base his actions or make his actions contingent upon you or your behavior. In other words, I don't want to pray, oh Lord God, uh, because I've been so faithful to you, may you be faithful to me. I want to pray, God, because you, your faithfulness is unchanging. It does not change. There's no shadow of alteration. Lord, for your namesake and who you are, be faithful to me. Because God's character is unchanging. His love for his people is unchanging. And so I don't ever want to put myself in a position where God's faithfulness is contingent upon some human action. It's contingent upon my behavior, my performance. And so when you call upon God to act for his namesake, you are saying, God, be who you are. Be the God of justice, the God of love, the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of compassion that you say you are. You've revealed yourself as that way. So for your namesake, defend your character. And that's a prayer that you could take to the bank. It's not contingent upon human effort or performance. So you pray, God, hallowed be your name. And then the text goes on. The prayer goes on. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, oftentimes people misunderstand this portion of the prayer to be a passive component. Meaning, okay, God, not my will, your will. Just forget what I want and, and you go do your thing. Not my will, you go do your thing. Your will be done. But that, that's not what's modeled in scripture. So who's the most famous person to, to ultimately pray, not my will, but your will? Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And when Jesus prays to his father and says, not your will, not, not my will, your will, God. What does he do? He then goes to the cross. It's not some passive thing. Let's God, you just do your thing. It's Lord, I'm not going to do it my way. I'm going to do it your way. And that may mean taking up my cross and going to die. So it's not a passive component of the prayer. It's an active component. Second component to this that's important is this idea of God's kingdom coming to earth. This prayer reflects an ache, an ache deep in our bones and deep in our soul, deep in our being. You look around at the world, it's not right. And isn't that incredibly more obvious than ever? 
The world's not right. It's broken, terribly broken. There are people with not enough food to eat. There are wars and, and crime and viruses. And so when you pray the Lord's prayer, you have this ache, God, your kingdom come. This kingdom, the kingdoms of this earth with all their faults and failures and the evils that, that, that are embedded into them. Lord, we want them to give way to your kingdom. And there's a deep ache in the human spirit when you pray the Lord's prayer. Lord, we want to see your kingdom come. The Jewish people had that ache. In the first century, when Jesus taught them how to pray this, they had been oppressed after empire, after empire, after empire. It was the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and then in the first century, the Romans. Oppression after oppression after oppression. And there's this ache, God, for your name's sake, be true to your word and have your kingdom come on earth down here, not just up there in heaven. We want to see your goodness come. We want you to reign as king. And so the Lord's prayer has this ache into it. When Jews prayed, in the first century, the majority of the prayers would begin with Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe. It's this idea that God is the King and he has a kingdom. And you know what? Down here on earth, we've had bad King and bad kingdoms all throughout history. But we ache and long for the day when the good King will bring his good kingdom. And we want to see it down here where we live on earth as it is in heaven. <clears throat> There's a beautiful Jewish prayer called the Kaddish that captures this. Um, and it, it's a prayer that you could pray over your children. You might want to take up this practice of praying it over your children. It, it's a prayer that not only longs to see God's kingdom come, but it says in your lifetime. It goes like this. It says, Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world, which he created according to his will. May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days. Now think about praying that over your children. May you see God's kingdom in your lifetime, in your days. You know, there's a lot of things to fear. And when I think about the world that my children will enter into, as a good father, as a loving father, I want to protect them from so much harm, but I know I can't. The world is broken. They're going to be hurt. They're going to feel pain. And so when you pray for your kids, you can pray, man, I trust the good heavenly father to, to look after them. But Lord, we also pray that maybe, just maybe in my kid's lifetime, they would see the coming of your kingdom. They would see the day when evil is eradicated, disease is destroyed, violence is done away with and righteousness vindicated. So we pray and we ache and we long when we pray the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the first half, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now the pivot, give us this day our daily bread. Now this 
one sentence has probably taken on new meaning for the new meaning for the modern developed world. See, in many Christian circles in the last 20 or 30 years, whenever there's teaching about this portion of the prayer, the bread is spiritualized. Um, Because in America, no one was praying for daily bread, right? We didn't have to worry about having enough food. And so you'd often hear people say, this is this is Jesus teaching us pray for spiritual food, that, that we would have our spiritual nourishment on a day-to-day basis because we were so removed from the fact that many people actually prayed for daily bread when they asked for daily bread. In fact, many people today, many people throughout history, and maybe for the first time, we're experiencing just a small taste of what it's like to pray for daily provision right? Some of you have actually worried about daily provision for the first time in our lives. I mean, I've certainly never lived through something like this. Never. Where you're worried about, will I have enough food? Um, What if power goes out? Do I have a generator? Or it's almost laughable, but in, in a sense, it's not. It's serious and kind of creepy at the same time. What if you run out of, huh? Yeah. Toilet paper, you got it? You know what I mean? It's like, we never worried about this stuff before, food or toilet paper or, or, you know, power going out. It's like, all of a sudden, whether the fears are legitimate or not, they're feeling as if they're real as, as we're experiencing this lockdown. And so now we're able to understand this prayer a little bit better. Because when the first followers of Jesus prayed for daily provision, they meant daily provision. And of course, this this portion of the prayer is grounded like most portions of the New Testament in the Old Testament. So when you think about needing God to provide daily bread, you're supposed to go back to a previous story. And that story is in the book of Exodus, where Israel is enslaved by the Egyptians. God brings Moses and miraculously delivers Israel out of oppression, bondage, and slavery. He delivers them out of Egypt and he says, you're going to the promised land. Now here's the important part. Israel has been delivered from slavery and they are on the way to the promised land, but they're not there yet. And they are about to go into the wilderness And in the wilderness, they will learn to rely on God for daily bread. So let me say that again. Israel was on their way to the promised land, but they weren't there yet. They had to go to the wilderness to learn what it's like to rely on daily bread from their good heavenly father. Now, Christian... You have to understand this is, this is your predicament as well. Christian, you have been delivered from slavery and bondage and you are on your way to the promised land, but you're not there yet. And now in this life, you must learn to rely on your good heavenly father for daily bread. So the Lord's prayer teaches us We're going somewhere, but we're not there yet. And in the present, we wait and depend upon our good father 
who knows our needs before we ask them. And we wait for daily bread and provision. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. In one sense, super simple. In another sense, super hard to put into action. Christians have been forgiven much. If you're a follower of Jesus, you say, I deserved death but Jesus Christ paid my debts and has forgiven me. Therefore, out of the forgiveness I receive, that forgiveness should flow into others. Now there's a macro sense in which that is true, which changes everything. But for the moment, for the situation we find ourselves in, I just want to talk about a micro, like a microcosm of this. Uh, that's incredibly relevant and practical. It's like many of us are in, in places that are confined, confined in ways that we've, we haven't quite experienced before. So um, some, you know, here's the thing. Some of you have these like wonderful marriages and wonderful families where it's like, there's never an argument and there's never any problems, never any frustrations. Great, that's, that's awesome. And then there's some of you who it's like, man, being on lockdown has created more arguments, more frustrations. You find yourself being more snappy with your kids. And what I want to tell you is just because there's more frustration in a marriage or a family doesn't mean there's any less love. It just means we all come from different places. A lot of us have more baggage being brought to the table. But in these moments, the Lord's prayer teaches us, and especially if we say it three times a day, to say, hey, just drop the attitude, the frustrations, the argumentation. I've been forgiven much. Let this house be a house of peace. Let that forgiveness just, just be a theme in the household. And there's some of you who you're wrestling with loneliness. Maybe you're, you know, you're on lockdown and there's no one else in your place. And oftentimes that can grow into to bitterness because so-and-so hasn't called. Your family member here hasn't, hasn't called to check in on you and you start feeling neglected or maybe it turns into resentment or bitterness. It's like, hey, if you're a follower of Jesus, you had the death penalty and you've been forgiven. And so as forgiveness comes to you, learn to extend that to others. And if you're gonna do that, you might need to pray this prayer three times a day. And lastly, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a difficult one because if, if you've been reading your Bible a long time, you know the Bible says, and it specifically says in the book of James that God doesn't tempt anyone. God isn't tempted and he doesn't tempt people. So if God isn't tempted and he doesn't tempt people, why do we pray, lead us not into temptation? Well, there's, there's a lot of contextualization going on and there's a lot of context surrounding this, this passage, but essentially what Jesus is communicating is this. You pray that God would not allow your feet to wander into a place of temptation. That's what, that's what is trying to be communicated here. So it's this idea that looks a little something like this. Let's say, let's say you just start one of those like crazy hard, like, like really strict uh, diets. Like you're, you're going to go keto. If you don't know what keto is, just it's where you don't eat, like you're not going to eat any of the good, luscious, beautiful, wonderful carbohydrates that God, that God has placed on his good green earth. So like you're saying, I'm not going to eat any of these donuts anymore. No more donuts. I'm keto. Okay. But as you're driving to church, you go by the donut shop, man, and you get a little whiff, get a little whiff. Oh man. 
the donut shop's open and it smells so good. What you, what, what you are asking God to do in situations like this is like, hey, Lord, protect me from even going by the donut shop so that I'm not even smelling those donuts. So I'm not even put into a situation where I can be tempted. And so it's obviously much more serious than, than donuts. But it's like, Lord, don't put me in a place where I'm gonna be tempted to lust. Don't put me in a place where I'll be tempted to become greedy. Lord, don't, don't, don't give me so much money, Lord, that I, that I forget that I'm dependent upon you for daily bread. Do not let my feet wander or be led into a place where temptation occurs. But rather, God, as the prayer concludes, deliver me from evil. And so how should we pray? When Jesus is asked that question, he says, don't pray like the Gentiles and the pagans. Don't try to manipulate God. Go to your heavenly father. He knows your needs. And when you talk to him, pray like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, as we conclude, I want to talk about three things that come out of this. In this time, we should not be given over to fear or anxiety, but this prayer should remind us of three things. First, should help us to remember who we serve, remember who we are, and it should help us remember his kingdom. And briefly, just those three things. First, you need to remember who you serve. You serve the king, but this king is not just a king like an earthly king. This king is also your good heavenly father. He is for you, not against you. The moon is always round and he is always good. He loves you. And when your feet begin to shake and you're afraid to jump, this father says, I'm going to catch you, son. Trust me. Secondly, we need to remember who we are and that flows out of who he is. If he is our father, then I am his child. He loves me. He loves me like only a good father can. And no matter what harm comes to me in this world, even if I die in this world, the good heavenly father has prepared a table for me. He has adopted me into his family. And then lastly, based out of those two truths of who God is and who we are, we are in this prayer to remember his kingdom. Because the truth is in moments like this, in crisis, everyone could become selfish. We just focus on our needs. Is there gonna be enough for me? Is there gonna be this for me and my family? We're in a moment of opportunity where God's people can truly be God's people. We could be the generous, kind, loving, compassionate people we're called to be. We're not at the promised land yet. We're going into the wilderness wanderings. We're going to learn to trust him and be faithful. And in doing so, hopefully the rest of the world sees something different about us. So this isn't just a crisis. It's a moment of opportunity for the church to be the church. And there's already so many incredible 
stories coming out. Um, you're going to hear about this in the morning uh, update on our YouTube channel on, on Monday, but we set up a call center. We've received hundreds and hundreds of people checking in, reporting needs, saying, how can I help? What can I do? People are calling. We have call lists of people just checking in on each other. And a lot of it's behind the scenes, but just know that even in the midst of crisis, God's spirit is still at work. And it's time for the church to remember the Lord's prayer. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And lastly, my final word for us all to remember and to focus on is that the Lord's prayer is also embodied in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who prays to his heavenly father. And he says, Lord in heaven, hallowed be your name. I don't want to do my will. I'm going to do your will because I am your son and I'm going to bring about your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, in my death and resurrection, I will become the daily bread of your people. And Lord, we will forgive the world. We will forgive the sins of men, the sins of women, because I myself as the son of God will take up their debts and pay them. And Jesus does this at the cross. And ultimately because of his death, he delivers us from evil. And so Jesus is the living, walking, breathing embodiment of the prayer. He just doesn't pray it to his father. He lives it out to his dying death as he's forgiving the world of sins and we are crucifying him. He says, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so in this moment of crisis, he himself is our example. He leads the way and we follow. So be encouraged. Do not fear. Remember who you serve. Remember who you are and remember his kingdom. And we'll keep chugging along through this process. We're going to close in worship and in prayer. Father God, um, I pray that people would commit to, to memorizing this prayer if they haven't already. And that we would say it at least once a day. It would be great if, if many people would take up this prayer three times a day. Lord, you've taught us how to pray. And so we want you to act for your namesake and we want your kingdom to come. And Lord, I pray that it would be in the lifetime of my children that they would see your coming kingdom. Evil would be eradicated, disease defeated, violence done away with. And Lord, we pray that you continue to be our daily bread and you provide daily provision. And because we've been forgiven, we want to be a forgiving people, Lord. Lead us not into temptation. And thank you for ultimately delivering us from ultimate evil, but in the immediate, protect us from temporary evil as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.